This is the Low Level Hell Podcast, episode 14. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, the program that explores the world of rotary and fixed wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey guys and gals, welcome back to International Month here on the show. Last week we traveled to the frozen wastelands, I'm kidding, of Canada, and now we're traveling down to the land where toilets flush in the wrong direction and all the wildlife can murder you. But before we do that, I want to thank all of you for leaving reviews and comments. Oh wait, not all of you have done that yet. Okay, well that's real easy. Just take a look at wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can probably scroll down to the bottom, find some little stars or thumbs, and just start tapping away. And you can probably find a space where you can leave a comment and tell me how much you love the show and wish that it was on all the time. Actually, don't do that because I can barely keep up with twice a month. But, you know, you get the idea. All right, going to roll into this week's guest. I apologize. There's a little clicking sound on Scott's audio. Not sure if that was a mic or the software we use, but, you know, I was talking to a guy literally on the other side of the planet for me. So I think we can afford a little leeway into sound quality. Hope you guys enjoy and we'll see you on the wrap up. All right. All right, everybody. Welcome to the episode here. We're with uh, Scott Matthew, who is a uh, former Australian Army pilot. And uh, I believe you do some medevac now. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. I'm a HEMS pilot now. Okay, great. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, we're kind of continuing our, our series here. I wanted to kind of do an international series, if you will. So uh, I just want to learn a little bit about the uh, the other side, how the other side lives, I guess you could say, and a little bit about the Australian Army and how the helicopters work there. So why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, and we'll, we'll kind of go through it from there. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. The... Uh I'll, uh, a bit about myself. Normally, I'm known as Bear. Uh, that's my uh, my nickname in uh, in real life as well as uh, online. Uh, so I, uh, I'm just a normal small town kid who uh, finished high school and uh, and didn't know what to do. So I couldn't milk a cow or fix a car. So that was pretty much it for job prospects in my hometown. Uh, half the other kids in my school seemed to be going to uni or college, um, but I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Yeah, uh, growing up, I. I wanted to be a pilot, uh, but in the same way, I wanted to be an astronaut and a cowboy and uh, <laughs> a, a policeman. You know, just one of those uh, one of those dream. dreams that it, exactly it's it's something that other people do. You know, well, it wasn't for me. You know, growing yeah. up, I had all the uh, I don't know if you had them like the uh, Air Force monthly magazines and uh, mm-hmm. airplane magazines with the big fold out picture in the middle of an A ten or an F sixteen. Yeah, and uh, and I used to get all of those and and, and just loved them, but uh, never really took it. Uh, seriously. Um, so yeah, I finished school and had no idea what I wanted to do. So figured I'd join the army. Uh, and for, you know, the four years I signed on, they'd, they'd feed me, they'd pay me. Uh, I get to do some cool stuff and you know, maybe by the time I was ready to get out, I'd have figured out what I wanted to do. <laughs> so yeah, uh, initially I joined as a soldier, um, uh, into, into signals call, went through, uh, you know, normal basic training in, uh, in the mid nineties, back in 94, which is a long time ago now. The uh, yeah went through basic training and uh, that that was uh, that was 
I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't do it again. But uh, one of those things, <laughs> I'm I'm so glad I did it. The uh, you know it uh, it really drills home you know, you know your resilience it makes you fairly bulletproof to uh, you know insults and punishment. And uh, yeah. you know you learn you learn just how far you can run, which was a lot further than I thought beforehand. So. And then I went into Signals Corps, and uh, yeah, for four years I was a EW or electronic warfare operator, uh, and basically, yeah, just listening into the enemy's communications and uh, other little side uh, jobs like DF and things like that. Um, and that, that was cool, fun. We initially went to Seven Sig uh, Regiment EW, which was a, a field unit. And it was lots of run around in the bush and a big heavy pack on my back and doing cool stuff like uh, you know the static line parachute uh, course uh which is a great idea when you're uh, 18 or 19 but uh, oh yeah yeah when you're an adult you don't want to do it because it's a great, <laughs> easy yeah, way to I, I went to uh airborne school i think i was 33 oh, and i man. immediately regretted it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i like we i can't remember how many guys we had but we had so many injuries uh and you know a few big ones like guy blows out his knee completely another guy hurt yep. his back pretty badly and uh, and a lot of those guys didn't seem to do a whole lot wrong they uh those old round shoots, you just hit the deck pretty hard. Mm. But yeah, so after a couple of years of you know running around the bush doing silly army stuff, uh, which was perfect for me when I was 18, uh, I got sent to, to Canberra, uh, capital, uh, to basically work in the same job, but uh, operationally, so indoors. And yeah, it was year-round shift work, mm. uh, sitting down at a computer with a couple of screens, headphones on the whole time, and uh, and yeah, listening into uh, to our targets. And for a, a you know, 19, 20 year old kid, that that was terrible. I could, uh, you know, it was it was a slow death. Yeah. And yeah, uh, it's not what I wanted. And so I started to seriously think about what I was going to do uh, next. And you know, I'd, I'd uh, seen you know, helicopters while I was in the army, and uh, read into it and realized that um, look, I met the minimum qualifications, and uh, you know, perhaps it was something that I could do. It wasn't just for other people. So. Started my application, um, and uh, in the interim, actually got out and worked in a computer game store part time for uh, for a year, uh, which which was a nice break. But yeah, in uh, 2000, uh, was selected for uh, a SSO pilot. Um, now, for us uh, in the Australian Army at the time, it's it's changed now. But uh, 20 years ago, there were two streams uh, to go in. There was GSO or a General Service Officer. Uh, and that's that's your, your normal officer, same as an infantry guy, same as armoured, uh, same as everything. They do 18 months uh, at the uh, Royal Military College Dundrian in Canberra. Uh, and at the end of it, they all pretty much come out the same uh, at the end of it. You know, they're all uh, trained, but probably not capable of, uh, of mm-hmm. leading a platoon of troops up a hill and uh, killing the enemy. Uh, and from there, they go on to do uh, pilot training. Now, they also had the uh, the SSO, which is the Specialist Service Officer uh, Scheme, which is probably similar to uh, the Warrant Scheme um, yeah. uh, for you guys, although we all wear the same rank, uh, which is a fair bit And get paid the same. Get paid the same, yeah. Now, obviously, <laughs> your, your career progression will be a little bit different. Uh, yeah. And on paper, uh, you're there for a different reason. You know, like like a Warrant Scheme, you're there to, you're there to be the, the flying or pilot specialist and remain in the... Uh, in, in the flying stream with the you know, maintenance slots, uh, instructor slots, things like that, which it didn't quite work out. They, uh, it was never, it wasn't as uh, as formal as the warrant scheme, and especially mm-hmm. since we're all wearing the same rank, it was very easy for that line to sort of get blurred in between the two uh, types yeah. of officers. Uh, and these days, they don't even uh, they don't even have SSOs. Um, oh really? A, okay. Yeah, basically, it's it's something that came up as a 
uh, to, to fill a shortfall uh, in mm-hmm. the pilots they had. And uh, not, not for most of the Army, but uh, for a lot of the older uh, or more senior officers, uh, a lot of them really hated the idea of, yeah. uh, of, ha- of having pretend officers there, you know, wearing the same rank they used to wear. And uh, uh, But, yeah, supposedly jealous, wanting- probably. Possibly jealous. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and look, technically, you could have got a guy straight off the street, uh, and we certainly did. We had a lot of guys straight off the street. Uh, and, you know, you do a seven-week course uh, at RMC. Which mm. is the same thing the uh, the nursing officers, the padre, uh, the education officers, all the all the pretend officers who just have a qualification <laughs> the army needs. Uh, yeah. We all do that same course, and it's a pretty it is a pretty token affair. Uh, right. Yeah, in that seven weeks, you kind of uh, they give you a bit of a it's called a knife and fork course. Which, uh, so that they they teach you how to hold a knife and fork like a real officer, and then uh, send you on your way. They, uh, they try and give you one lesson of everything uh, that the real officers do in 18 months. Um, but, and you can imagine none of that really sticks. The, um, and then you do a little bit of field phase, which is pretty much like doing your annual um, infantry minor tactics in a normal unit where you go out and you, you sleep under a hoochie and you learn how to eat a ration pack. Uh, and yeah, for, so for guys who'd never done it before, it was interesting. But for guys who'd been soldiers before, which was most of us, um, yeah, it, it was uh, like a waste of time is the wrong term to use, but yeah, it was a waste of time. Anyway. So was that typical, not to cut you off, but I'm yeah. just trying to understand the, the typical flow of, of pilots in the Australian Army. So, you know, for, for us, the typical flow would be, well, from the commission side, you, you went to you went to college or in, in your case, you, like you're talking about the academy there. But for the warrant officers, yeah, you could be an enlisted guy or you could be street to seat. But it sounds like it was the same for the, the what you call SSOs. Yeah, you could be yep. a little bit of you, you could be one or the other, and that was pretty much how it was. I mean, was it it wasn't odd for you as an enlisted guy to go that route? No, that's it. It, it was fairly common for guys, uh, you know, retreads uh, we call ourselves, the, uh, for guys to go from soldier uh, to uh, to SSO. It didn't really confer any benefits on. Uh, um, on the application process, uh, didn't make it any easier to get in, but obviously just your, your practical skills and knowledge just uh, meant it was a lot easier to figure out uh, sure. how to get through the course and how to how to exist uh, in the army. Because for the guys that go from the street, um, they're, they're, most of them had no military experience whatsoever. Uh, then they do the seven week course that didn't really teach them a whole lot, you know. The, Sure. They, get, they get a lesson on everything, and you know you learn about uh, a pretend enemy's uh, mechanized infantry division, which doesn't stick longer than the forty-five minutes that you do the uh, the lesson. Uh, and then they go off and do. Then we all go off and do our flying training, which uh, at the time was usually around about a year and a half to, to two years. And then uh, boom, you're in your squadron uh, as a brand new lieutenant. Uh, and so if you come from the street. You really didn't remember anything from that seven weeks at RMC because it was two years ago. Um, sure. It, it, it wasn't very thoroughly taught uh, or at least not thoroughly retained. I should, probably shouldn't blame the teaching. It was uh, it was more that we had, uh, you know, we were thinking about our flying training. Then you do a year and a half of flying training, which isn't particularly military or certainly not focused on the rest of the army um, while you're going through that. And then, boom, you show your unit. You're a brand new lieutenant. Uh, and if you're dealing with other units, you know, you're dealing with a, a platoon of infantry. Uh, they don't know your background. They don't know the level of training you had. They just know you're a lieutenant. Um, so they have a certain expectation of what that means as far as what your skills and knowledge are. So occasionally there would be a bit of a, a, a disconnect there. 
when you get guys straight from the street, uh, they'd have a different level of experience or background. Uh, and occasionally we'd just send a, a, an NCO along with them as a sort of a, as a responsible adult uh, and mm. translator. Um, and like we had uh, we had a couple of guys. Uh, a friend of mine came from the Air Force. He was a, a maintainer on F one elevens, and he he came across. So overall, you know, you, you still had a good experience uh, uh, with the military and a good understanding of what the army was was about. But uh, particularly with acronyms and things like that, he'd sit in there in the brief, uh, particularly with armoured guys, and uh, and he'd have to have a, a corporal sitting next to him, whispering in his ear all the time, explaining uh, what it was the colonel was talking about. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds familiar. I mean, just for our own lieutenants who, like you said, probably don't have as much exposure. I mean, if they went to the academy, that's one thing. If they went to ROTC, they went straight into flight school. Because like you said, flight school is not really anything military. It's, you know, you're spending all your time worried about how to fly the aircraft. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and ours, uh, at least the first six months, wasn't particularly military at all. Um, pardon me. After, uh, after your officer training, whether you go GSO or SSO, uh, again, it's changed now, but uh, at the time we would go to the uh, BFTS or the Basic Flight Training School, uh, which was actually a, a civilian um, civilian flying organisation there run by British Aerospace. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, uh, you know, yeah, we still had a, an Air Force a CO. This was tri-service, Army, Navy and Air Force, uh, all doing fixed wing. But, um, yeah, it was, it was run by the Air Force. Uh, so again, not not particularly military, uh, or, or at least as as army guys think about it. So that's universal. <laughs> it, it is absolutely universal, and uh, I, I can get away with it because my wife's ex Air Force, so I, yeah. I'm married into it. But yeah, you know, I, I tell my kids the Air Force is it's great if you like uniforms, but you're scared of guns. That's what you do. The uh, so always uh, call them the corporation. <laughs> oh, it is. You know, and for a little while there, the uniforms changed regularly, of course. But for a little while there, they, they weren't a uniform that made them just look like postal workers. But uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> but, but having said that, they, generally the guys that go to the Air Force, they, they know what they're getting into, and that's exactly what they want. I, I mean, work. yeah, we're sitting here busting their balls a little bit. But just for listeners who are now getting furious at me for making fun of Air Force, <laughs> I will tell you that my son, who has just turned 15, I, I have encouraged him, if you're going to join the service, join the Air Force. So just... Just throwing yeah. that out there, but, uh, oh, but yeah, absolutely. And there is definitely an element of jealousy in there too, because uh, sure, oh yeah, oh man, yeah, my life would have been so much uh, not not easy. My life would have been so much better being part of an organization that actually cared about uh, you know pilots, aircraft, all that sort of good stuff. <laughs> the, um, you know, I probably would have been less effective, but uh, I <laughs> might, might even <laughs> might even still be in. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, we go through that six months of uh, fixed-wing flying training. Uh, we all do fixed-wing first. Oh, wow, uh, six months. Okay. Yeah, six months. Uh, you come out of there with about 120 hours, or at least I did. Uh, maybe better mm. guys come out with 100 hours. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, just your, your basic fixed-wing stuff. You come out of there with uh, as if you'd done uh, up to a, a CPL uh, mm-hmm. uh, as far as your, your qualifications go. Uh, and, and the level of training uh, on the little CT4B. It's a different aircraft now, but uh, the little Parrot. Uh, it was a great little plane, a variable pitch prop, uh, strong as hell. It could do uh, you know plus six to minus three Gs, uh, and it was and it was a rugged little truck, you know, and which of course it has to be for, to to cope with the punishment. Uh, we yeah. we put we put them through. Uh, it was fully aerobatic, um, and yeah, the uh, it was a good way for the ADF to, to basically uh, 
uh, cull again is, is, is harsh or the wrong term to use, but uh, mostly so sort out the guys that uh, that aren't going to make it through the course nice and early before they've spent too much money on them, uh, really, because it, it's cheap to operate. You can get them up in the air. You can figure out which guys uh, just aren't necessarily um, picking it up. Um, yeah. It, pretty much anyone can be a pilot. Like you know, you, you can teach anyone to fly. But of course, the military yeah. wants a guy that's going to learn at a certain rate and, and take things on board. Like you know, they don't want someone who who can be a pilot, but is going to take twice as long as anyone else to do it. Um, they've got enough well, applicants. And, and they can uh, two for you right. guys. I mean, it's a pretty small military. It so is. You only it's, have so many slots. Yeah, it's it's relatively tiny. But uh, we weren't even filling those slots uh, a, lot, a lot of the time. Then we. Uh, uh, on my course, we had we started with thirteen army guys, uh, and we finished with four after that six months. Wow, uh, that was uh, yeah, uh, that, that was a pretty high rate of attrition there. The uh, the navy started with six, finished with one, uh, and the air force guys started with a, a hell of a lot more than us, but they also lost uh, a hell of a lot more. Um, and it, it was pretty brutal at the time. Like uh, like I said, they're trying to trying to cut guys uh, before they've you know, invested too much money in. Uh, they want to. They're trying to get rid of guys that aren't learning at the uh, uh, the appropriate rate or, or the rate that the uh, the ADF needs. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it made it a pretty brutal place. You know, you, you got a, a group of guys that uh, you know, sixty odd guys, and for most of them, their their whole dream, their whole lives has been to be a pilot. You know, they they've been working at this for for years and years. Some of them been through the uh, Defence Force Academy, uh, which is like you know university degree. So they've been at this for four or five years already. Uh, and then, yeah, suddenly they, they see their friends around them are all getting cut uh, and dropping. Like a guy would, uh, he'd scrub, uh, he'd, he'd fail his ride, and he'd be pretty much packing his car and, uh, and heading out the gate that afternoon. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, after a little while, it was, uh, it was a bit of an era of doom and gloom. You know, you, you got a bunch of guys that uh, were worried about going out flying because you know, if they mess it up, just have a bad day. Uh, it's never just one bad ride, of course. You know, you'll, you'll have sure. a bad ride and then you'll get a couple of remedial, but then you, you'll be pretty much up for your scrub ride than the next one. And you know, it's not like it gets any easier when you're up for a scrub ride. And uh, yeah. I know that. Yeah, well, I know the pressure's that. on at that point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, I uh, I had two two shots at the nav test, which tell you how tells you how that first one went. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you know, you, I'm I'm trying to do this uh, this nav test, and there's a, you know, the little voice in the back of your head going, "Well, maybe we could do ATC if this doesn't work out, or or this or that." And uh, and a big part of getting through the course was was just sort of a bit of resilience and trying to uh, control that little voice in the back of your head that says you're probably not cut out for this hmm. because you've generally got an instructor sitting there next to you who's also looking at you saying yeah you're not cut out for this hmm. and, so were uh, they were they pretty hard i mean as far as their interaction with you or, yeah. or did they do a lot of coaching to try to get you past it no it was generally they 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 give you the the syllabus they give you the required uh, teaching uh, and then that was it um hmm. you, they they'd also try and uh, ex if things weren't gelling or clicking they'd also you know try different ways to explain it uh, or you could obviously ask as many questions as you liked but yeah. uh, you're pretty much on your own like if if you weren't picking it up yeah you know, they'd try and steer you in the right direction if that didn't work they'd uh, you'd get a one for the right or uh, or a zero huh. and um, yeah so the, and you felt like you were under the pump the whole time you got this guy sitting there and uh, he's yeah. next to you and he's just staring at you out of the uh, out of the corner of his eye, and you can you can feel it <laughs> bearing down on you. Uh, even and if you're were done these, these were civilian instructors, or they were military. 
mostly military. They did have some civilian contract uh, pilots. Uh, and uh, obviously most of them with a military background, although not all, some of them were entirely civilian. Uh, we had one guy who'd flown, uh, uh, I can't remember which country, the former I think Soviet Union he'd come from, but he'd flown MiGs. Um, so, yeah, he was fantastic. Some of his, uh, uh, some of his stories were amusing. Uh, and then, yeah, a lot of current serving, mostly Air Force. We had, we had one, I think we only had one Army guy instructing when I was uh, going through, but it, it would change from time to time. Uh, generally, unless a guy was going for a, a civilian job down the track or he wanted to change to the Air Force, most Army guys didn't want to go back there to instruct um, just because suddenly you're going back flying this little single-engine uh, fixed-wing prop. It's not that exciting. Uh, and know, where was the school at in, in Australia? Yeah, a place called Tamworth, which is uh, out west in, uh, in New South Wales, sort of in the middle of the nowhere, country music, mm. uh, heartland. So, um, which was good for me because it meant I didn't go out much uh, after uh, <laughs> after work because I'm, I'm not a country music fan. The um, uh, and and I was probably saved to him that uh, I didn't go out much. You know, most uh, at the time I was, uh, I was I was one of the older guys. I was in my mid twenties, um, and uh, but most of the younger guys, of course, would go into town and, and straight to the pub uh, on a weekend. Whereas, um, yeah, I'm trying to drag Mars through this course uh, I knew I had to work at it so I generally uh, at the boozer on a Friday night I'd uh, write myself off go back sleep through half of Saturday and have a bit of a relax and then Sunday straight back into the books because uh, I needed to I was I was not a natural at uh, the Air Force way of doing things hmm. uh, and to top it off uh, my wife uh, uh, we'd got married at the start of that year uh, and yeah we were having a we just had a daughter uh, my, my first kid was born uh, like the weekend before I did GF1, my first flight. Oh, so, um, yeah, so so I had that as well, just for a bit of extra pressure, knowing that, well, now I had a family, so uh, I, I kind of needed this job. Well, not yeah. only that, just the turmoil of having a, a newborn in the house and the, the, you know, the schedule that, that I'm sure you were keeping as a flight school student. Well, that that was different, and, and thanks to my my wife who was incredible the uh she was actually living in a different city we we were living mm. in canberra uh which was uh i don't even know how far uh, it was all it was a long drive mm. um so she stayed in canberra uh oh. you know we're, we're at a normal house where our friends were uh, to look after the baby uh whereas i was living on in tamworth uh so so completely separated uh, with just you know phone calls and then we'd catch up sort of every second weekend uh, mm. I think by the time she was six months old uh, I think I'd seen my daughter about 20 days mm. um, you know which was, uh, it was it was a little harsh but uh, I had other stuff to concentrate on the time so it wasn't too bad yeah. for me and my wife will happily tell you that you know, she, at least this way she only had one child in the house to look after <laughs> you know, yeah. she, she, she could adjust her schedule to, to fit the baby basically you know when the baby's tired they slept, you know, when the baby's hungry, they ate. So yeah, it, there's a, some truth to that, that it's sometimes it's easier when the other parent is just gone. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't sound like happy family stuff, but uh, right. you know, in a practical sense, it, it really did work quite nicely. The, um, and, uh, so the, uh, the, the air force way of doing things, uh, as you imagine, it, it was all about the numbers. Uh, and that's, that's where a lot of our army guys, uh, struggled. Um, you know, you got guys that can read a map, um, that can you know, look out in the distance and can take you where you need to go, but the Air Force wants to know how to do it mathematically. Um, so, you know, you, you're, you're in this system uh, where you're flying down to you know, Air Force low levels, down to 500 feet, um, 
and you're looking at this little strip map you cut up the day before, uh, and uh, and you work out you know how far off track you are. And so yeah, you suddenly you, then you do a math trying to work out what the wind was, and then how how many degrees off track, and this many miles, and how many degrees to fix that up, and then how many degrees to get back on track. All, all this you've got mm-hmm. numbers just flying around uh, while you're trying to uh, fly this aircraft, which because it's fixed wing, luckily it pretty much flies itself, but still. <laughs> Um, whereas of course, you know, the army mentality and which we saw later in training was pretty much, all right, you look up and go, well, I wanted to be over that hill. I'm a little bit left to track. It means the wind's from my right. So I'm my next leg. Right. <laughs> I'll just aim a little to the right. Um, and you know, th- there's no mass. It's not exact, but it does mean that, uh, suddenly you can get your eyes back out, back outside, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and concentrate on more important stuff like, uh, you know, like tactical considerations. So. We we had a lot of guys, like I said, 13 down to four, a lot of guys who got scrubbed in that part of training um, who could potentially have been perfectly fine, Uh, Army aviators. And uh, so the Army generally fights a little or was fighting a little bit of a battle with the Air Force about what uh, the sort of stuff they needed to assess um, and the way they needed to to teach it. Later on, uh, after I finished, um, the Army guys, they speared the Army guys off to do their nav training uh, with army instructors uh, out out of a different base called Oki, so they do a, the completely different style of uh, particularly low level nav, um, and that that gave us better results. We we're getting more people through the system. Mm. Yeah. Was there a function there because of it's an uh, a tri service school? Was there a function there that you could essentially switch services, or you were locked in? You're locked in. Uh, okay. you, you, you're already uh, completely in the uh, Army, Navy, or Air Force. Um, at any time, you could do uh, service transfers, but mm. uh, it, was, it was a lot of paperwork. Uh, certainly wasn't unheard of, but uh, yeah, it, it wasn't a, a simple thing, um, particularly going to the, um, say, from Army to uh, Air Force. Uh, at least back then, you'd, uh, you'd have to do a wings eval. Uh, which basically going for going for a ride in uh, at the time of PC9, which was much faster than anything we've ever flown. And you go for a check ride, and uh, they can just cut you and say, yeah, this guy's not going to be an Air Force pilot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I knew a few guys that did do it, um, but but not many. Okay. So uh, at some point, you're obviously picking aircraft. Is that, uh, I'm assuming, just based on your grades, is you know, an order of merit list to, to pick what you want? Not, uh, not really uh, mm. for us, at least for us at the time. Certainly the, uh, the Air Force probably did it very differently. Um, and obviously their top performers are going fast jets, that sort of thing. Um, but from after that fixed wing, uh, we still hadn't made any choices yet. We went to uh, Canberra to where we, the Army, is where we spear off and do our own thing now. The Army had the uh, ADF Hilo School. Uh, and we're flying the... Uh, uh, our version of the Kiowa, which is basically a, a Bell 206 uh, B1 with a couple of little modifications, but really just a, a green jet ranger with a stack of extra radios in there. Yeah. Um, and that's where, uh, yeah, that's where we, that's the first time we sat in a in a helicopter, uh, and it was it was a lot nicer there. It was more of an adult learning environment, you know. The, you treat it like well, you've already you've you've got through Tamworth, you've got through the uh, the hard stuff where we cut everyone. Obviously, you've got the goods to to be a pilot so now, we, now we're going to teach you now we're going to work with you You know, if there's something you're struggling with we'll work with you we'll train you up we'll, uh, we'll get you through this um, and because that really very few people um, sort of failed on, on that portion of the course once you were there unless you know you, you had no aptitude for sure. a, a certain skill then 
Yeah, uh, but you, overall, you're a commodity at that point. You're something they want to maintain because they've put a lot of time and energy, and you've demonstrated at least the the ability to learn and, and do. So unless you screw it up royally, you're gonna you're gonna be yeah. okay. Yeah. So and that uh, that was great fun. You know, suddenly sit in a helicopter and uh, it's it's all the usual stories uh, you get. You know, you start off in a big uh, big field, learning to hover, and then the field gets smaller and smaller and the, uh, it was a beautiful training area. The, uh, it's up uh, about 1,800 feet. It's got a good mountainous region around uh, Canberra where we'd fly. So you could, uh, they'd take us into these pads. Now, I remember my first flight. Uh, you know, the, the instructors take you out for a bit of a, a bit of a gimme ride where, you know, he just shows you all the cool stuff that you'll be doing by the end of the course. Uh, and one of the, one of the pads we're coming down into, uh, I swear, we came down about 100 feet. Uh, from an OG hover, and uh, there was a good 100 feet just coming down through the trees, you know, 10, 15 foot off the mains in every direction, and he's just coming straight down. The whole time he's looking at me and he's chatting about how easy this thing is to fly. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even on the controls and I'm sweating, you know. I'm, I'm looking up, the, the sun's nearly gone. It was, this, this pad was that huge, and, uh, yeah, he's telling me, yeah, in, in another three months you'll be doing this. And I thought, yeah, of course, I'm thinking not, not a chance. But, uh, but, yeah, by the end of it, it's um it's it's phenomenal the stuff you pick up in in such a short time you know the stuff you're doing uh, on your own the um the obviously you do the normal in fixed wing you do all the normal progression stuff and you have your first solo and all that sort of good stuff which uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I was happy with it the day but I don't really remember it that well but my uh, my first solo in a, in a helicopter that was yeah that was what really gave me a buzz and made me feel like uh, yeah I was I was or I was going to be a pilot you know. Mm-hmm. So, so you guys do all the training in the bell, and then w- at what point do you kind of break off from there? Mm, uh, yeah, so that's about another six months uh, on the bell, uh, and uh, yeah, pretty much just learning to fly the learning to fly the bell in all different phases, uh, as well as IF, and just a hint of uh, of, of tactics. Um, by the end of that, you get to put in your um, uh, which aircraft type you want. Which at the time there was only the uh, the three. Uh, you know, there was uh, to go be a recce pilot. Um, flying the uh, the the Kiowa, so the same exactly the same model of uh, Bell were flying there, uh, Hueys and Blackhawks. Uh, at the time, the Chinooks and the um, the couple of fixed wing the army had were all second tour aircraft. You couldn't go straight into them from uh, from training. Hmm. The um, that was sort of reward positions, I guess. The uh, and yeah, I knew well. A, I knew I didn't fit in the Kiowa that well. I'm I'm six two and. Uh, Shorter than you, but still, it uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a comfy ride for oh, me. Oh yeah, that's not a comfortable seat. No, it's not. And the uh, we had uh, we wore Alpha helmets, and if you've seen the Alpha uh, Eagle, and it's got the uh, like the hard visor cover on top. Uh, myself and one of the other guys on course, who was even he would have been another inch taller than me, uh, we had to take that hard cover off, put a soft leather cover, and we flew with both our visors down just to give us an extra sort of mm. you know, half half an inch or so of room there. But even then, it, uh, it we didn't fit that little thing. Uh, and plus, um, uh, plus it, it's, it's not armed. There's no weapons on this thing at all. It's all, uh, you know, bloody, uh, sneaking around, hiding and reporting, uh, back yeah. home. So, speed so the ready- is your defense and you don't have any speed. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, the, your only defense is to be quiet and uninteresting. <laughs> the, um, yeah. So I wasn't that interested in the, uh, in the recce role at the time. So I had that as my third choice. Uh, and, uh, a black orc. I thought, yeah, it, you know, it, it looks nice. 
uh, and certainly it's, it's the role I wanted, uh, you know, working with troops on the ground, uh, or at least supporting uh, troops on the ground. But uh, but the Huey, uh, man, I just love the Huey. Um, and, you know, for all the reasons everyone does, the, the noise it makes, uh, how iconic it was. Uh, as a H-model Huey, you know, still the, the same same aircraft we had in Vietnam with uh, uh, with upgrades. Um, and, uh, I mean, it, uh, up until recently I had a, a Tirana. Uh, it's an old 70s muscle car. Uh, and, and it was for the same reasons. Uh, I love that car that I love the Huey. You know, it's made of metal. There's no automation, no no power steering, no nothing else. Uh, well, they got hydraulics on the Huey. But, uh, you know, if you're flying a Huey, you, you're actually flying it. You know, there's nothing in there to, uh, to assist you. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's a piece of history. So it, It's a piece of history, you know. The uh, Love the old girl. So I had uh, my top top choice was Huey, then Blackhawk, then, uh, then Kiowa. Uh, now, as far as what they uh, allocate, it's pretty much what's available, like who needs uh, pilots, and also a bit of a mix. Uh, our course at the time, they married us up with another course, and we had three of the GSOs or the real officers and three SSOs. And, uh, yeah, they it, it varies with what the Army wants, but uh, they, they try and have a bit of a mix, like not just send all the SSOs to, to Black Hawks and all the GSOs to uh, the Kiowa. So, yeah, we, all, we got a bit of a mix. And uh, and sure enough, I got my third choice. Uh, I was sent to to Kiowa's initially, oh. and uh, yes, and uh, I, I had about thirty seconds of thinking, "Oh man, that sucks." Uh, before <laughs> I remembered, these you know, what am I talking about? These guys are going to let me fly a turbine helicopter. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> honestly, I'm I'm happy to be doing nothing. This is this you know, it's fantastic. So anyway, and plus all the ground uh, the ground crewmen we had uh, at the school that all come from Kiowa Squadron. So yeah. These guys are hitting me up, telling me, "Look, you're going to love it. You know, it's it's, a, it's the coolest job. You know, with the the most you know, laid back, uh, you know, capable people, uh, and, and you can have a great time." So cool. I uh, I thought beauty, and I I set myself to becoming the, the best rookie pilot the world had ever seen, and I was going to love the job, and it was great. And then, sure enough, two weeks later, they decided, you know, they got their little, they got their mix of people you know, wrong. They wanted to adjust some things, so. Now you've be- emotionally prepared yourself for one thing, and now they're doing. Oh, oh you know, yeah, yeah. I was all about reconnaissance, and uh, screw those Blackhawk guys. Who the hell wants to do air mobile? So sure enough, I get changed to Blackhawks, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, all right. So I've just you know, been gobbing off for the last two weeks about uh, uh, smack hawks and not wanting to fly them. Yeah. All right. Okay. So uh, and made a 180 and decided. Cool, Black Hawk. You know, it's 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 powerful. It's it's capable. It's it's got all the good stuff. Going to do air mobiles. It's it's you know it's going to be great. I'm going to be the best air mobile pilot the world ever has ever seen. And, and screw those recce guys. The uh, damn Kiowa has got no power. The uh, and then sure enough, dedicated myself to that. And then the day the day of graduation, like four hours before our grad dinner, uh, the uh, chief instructor calls myself and uh, one of the other guys in. And says, "Hey, look, they've uh, they've opened up one Huey slot, and both you guys wanted Huey's first choice." Uh, and he said, uh, "I'll come back in a minute and uh, see who's going." And he left us to it. <laughs> <laughs> like, and you know, I'm I'm looking at the other guy, and I don't want to say anything because I, I still really want Huey's, you know. I, uh, uh, and and we we're good mates, and uh, luckily he spoke first, and he said, "Look, I'm you know, I'm not staying in the army for the long term. I'm uh, you know going to get out and get a civvy job down the track. So probably best I start racking up my uh, my multi-engine hours now." So hmm. he uh, he took the hit. We didn't have to Rochambeau for it or anything. He um, he took the hit and uh, and went Blackhawk. So I had all three of my choices, uh, but luckily ended on the correct one. <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, and then uh, and then up for uh, up to Oki uh, in in Queensland, which is uh, the School of Army Aviation, which is where you do your type transition onto whichever aircraft you're going to. Uh, and then yeah, just a couple of months to learn to to fly the Huey, and uh, just just love the old girl. She's just just beautiful, like you know. She uh, she feels like a muscle car. Um, you know, she she doesn't have enough power. She's got enough power to get the job done most days. Um, she hasn't got enough power to get you out of trouble if uh, if you screw things up. Uh, and she uh, flying that aircraft, I got to learn a lot about uh, aircraft handling and where the edges of certain things are because uh, yeah, it didn't have enough power or it didn't have enough tower rotor authority mm. or. And, of course, the Army being the Army, uh, the troops you're supporting, they uh, always show up with an extra person or they've got okay. gear they didn't tell you they had. Yeah. yeah. The, it, and, and it was great. It was it was my dream aircraft, uh, and, and I love flying. So what was the, the operational difference between having Blackhawks and Hueys? I mean, were, were mm. they kind of doing the same mission? It was just phasing them out or what? Yeah, well, uh, we were in a different regiment uh, initially. Like uh, at the time, we just had the two regiments, the first and the fifth. First was the reconnaissance regiment with the two Kiowa squadrons, but they also had the Huey squadron uh, as its utility aircraft, whereas uh, Five Avon uh, had the uh, the Black Hawks and, uh, and the Chinooks. They're obviously the air mobile guys. Um, so the Hueys, we were just uh, we're a dog's body, uh, you know, the, the perfect utility aircraft that uh, – the reconnaissance regiment, the headquarters, they really, they didn't want anything to do with this. You know, they, they were focused on reconnaissance and uh, uh, and that role. But of course, they had a, a squadron of Hueys they could use and abuse for every rubbish little job around the country. Um, <laughs> that uh, that the other bigger important aircraft didn't have time to do. Um, and and that's that was pretty much our life. Uh, it was it was good. It was a good learning experience because you had to be ready for anything. You know, you'd show up to an exercise. We were just there for – we'd be there for, for medivac. Um, you'd have two aircraft online for, for medivac with a couple of doctors and nurses, and you'd show up. And within the first half hour, you know, when the, the ground force commander realizes he's got a couple of Hueys, next thing you know, you know, you're doing uh, resupply missions, you're doing range clearances, uh, you know, you're doing every other little job that he's got that uh, that we can do faster than his ground vehicles. Uh you know, you'd, you'd be sent across the country to go work with some little reserve unit that doesn't, you know, that isn't an, isn't important enough to warrant getting a, a troop of Blackhawks, but they still want to do training, they still want air support. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you get uh, you're given two or three uh, Hueys, and you get told to disappear for a month and support these guys, and please just don't make the papers. Sometimes that's the best environment, right? I mean, when you're the the redheaded stepchild or, mm. you know, the, the Isle of Misfit toys and, and you kind of just get left alone and it, it builds, I think, stronger bonds. And yeah, you get kind of cooler little things that doesn't look sexy on paper, but when you do it, you're like, this is the best thing ever. It, it was great for that. You know, you, you had to learn to be self-sufficient at, uh, you know, brig- our brigade, of course, they uh, were responsible for us, gave us what we needed, but they really didn't want to be bothered with what we were doing. Um, they're concentrating on uh, you know, big army stuff, big air mobile things, big reconnaissance things. Uh, and, yeah, you you basically just manage your own uh, business, in, including, like, uh, so many jobs I had where there'd be one pilot, one loadmaster or, or you know, a crew chief uh, equivalent uh, and a couple of engineers. And, you know, you'd, you have an aircraft with enough hours uh, free between major maintenance to, to get the job done. And you just disappear into the wilderness for a month. And, you know, apart from ringing, uh, ringing the wife to see how she was, no one would hear from you as long as you didn't make the uh, the papers. 
Uh, and it was great. And you had to be able to organize your own, you know, fuel rations, everything else. The, uh, the number of times you'd show up at an exercise as a medivac and realize that uh, no one had been assigned. To, you hadn't been attached to any unit for food uh, or rations <laughs> because no one, no one ever thinks about this admin stuff. They're, they're all yeah. thinking about, uh, you know, storming across the plains with a, with a troop of tanks or, or whatever. Uh, they've ticked a box on the sheet that says, yeah, we need medivac, and that's as much thought as they've given it. So, uh, you know, you'd show up and say, hey, all right, we're going to set our stuff here. Uh, who's feeding us? And, and you just get blank stares all around. And realize, <laughs> oh crap! But uh, in, you know, we'd uh, generally do our own little black market there. You'd you'd find out where the cooks were. You send a couple of vehicles to bring the cooks back. You'd start up some Hueys and you'd just uh, you know give them a joyride. You'd throw them around the air for half an hour, high fives all around. And then next thing you know, we've got fresh meat packs uh, every night for for dinner. Um, you know, flying around, you'd see where the the firefighters have repositioned their uh, little bladders of water uh, to look like a little swimming pool. Send a couple of uh, vehicles to get pick up the firefighters, throw them around in the air, give them a joyride, take them up and down the beach. Next thing you know, they uh, they suddenly decide they need to reposition some water in our camp, and boom, we've got a swimming pool, and uh, and that's pretty much how we got the job done. Uh, yeah, a lot of single pilot stuff, uh, a lot of uh, just sort of doing your own thing, and it was great. Yeah, especially like flying uh, across Australia, there's there's big expanses of nothing in the middle there. Uh, and, you know, sort of learning how to organize to you know, get some, have some drums left in a certain spot for you uh, to fuel up on the way because there, there aren't airports uh, within range. Hmm. The, uh, it, it was great for that. Um, the, other, the other cool role we had too was the, the gunships. Um, we still had the, the Huey gunships when I got there. Hmm. Now, it, it wasn't, uh, wasn't a capability. We were never going to send a Huey gunship anywhere dangerous. Um, it, it was pretty much kept as a kept as a, a, a training platform, if you like, because we knew we were going to get uh, armed reconnaissance helicopters down the track. So we needed to keep the skills up primarily of the ground guys as far as managing uh, EOLAs and FARPs, loading the aircraft, all that sort of thing. You know, you, you need guys that are, are qualified and just understand the basics of how to set up an EOLA or a uh, explosive ordnance loading area there. And that's why we, we kept the Hueys, uh, the Huey gunships going. Because uh, they had the the mini guns and the two point seven five inch rockets. Uh, okay. Having said you that, you just kept it the, for the the culture essentially, just kind of keeping the mentality. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, they generally they'd uh, they'd only get to live fire. I'm uh, pretty sure it was only like once a year, and, and it wasn't even every year uh, mm. for a live fire. Uh, we we weren't using the rockets um, uh, when I got there. They'd basically sort of uh, they they'd can the rockets because they'd had a mishap years earlier or something to do with the, you know, um, some propellant problems. So they just thought, well, it's just easier to get rid of them. <laughs> um, so yeah, we only armed them, um, you know, sort of once a year, uh, to qualify a couple of guys. And, uh, I was junior at the time. I never got qualified on the actual weapons, but we'd, uh, we'd fly them, fly around, uh, with them quite regularly again, just to, just to practice, to keep the skills up. Uh, and then occasionally for uh, veteran fly pass, we did a lot of those too. Um, yeah, you, know, imagine, you can imagine a lot of Vietnam vets have got uh, a strong connection with the Huey. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. uh, they were run by our Air Force back in Vietnam, but uh, the same aircraft. Um, and so we would, uh, that was another great part of being in a Huey squadron. We'd, uh, we'd fly around to a lot of uh, yeah, memorial um, dedications, a lot of uh, veteran gatherings. So you'd, uh, you'd show up, you'd do a fly pass for the guys, you'd land at a nearby park so they could have a, a look over and a crawl over the aircraft. Uh, and then generally spend the rest of the weekend uh, drinking and occasionally being uh, offered drugs. It was it was great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got we got a fairly active uh, v- uh, veteran motorcycle group. 
uh, community mm. there. They're all lovely fellas, but yeah, they'd forget that uh, we we couldn't do the same things they could do. <laughs> so, how many um, hours did you end up flying in the Huey? Uh, I was there for about four and a half years, and uh, it was about th- or just under thirteen hundred hours uh, on the Huey. Huh. Okay. Uh, so that was the other great thing about the Huey was uh, it was reliable. You know, there are not that many things in there for, to to break, but um, yeah. They just kept going, and anything that did break, you could generally sort of uh, realign with a hammer uh, just, just to keep it going. Uh, they were cheap to run. Uh, is Yeah, you get a lot of hours, uh, which was great for just building your hands and feet and, and, and your experience. Sure. So after that four years is when you uh, went over to Chinooks? Yeah, yeah. The um, uh, Basically, I was, I was starting to get sort of tired in that uh, – the, the peacetime role. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to do anything. You know, we weren't going to send our Hueys anywhere, uh, mm. particularly dangerous. Uh, although we had done uh, the Boxing Day Tsunami. That was uh, that was a good trip, a uh, perfect job for the Huey. Um, but, yeah, so I started looking around thinking, well, what else am I going to do? And uh, as well as it was time to post me out. Like, uh, Army, at least Australian Army uh, career management, is every three to four years you just all change seats. Um Mm-hmm. And so the careers advisor is telling me, well, you know, you got to do something else. Um, doesn't matter that I was a, you know, a, a troop commander at the time. I was a, I was a maintenance test pilot. Uh, I had all these qualifications. I was sort of a fairly uh, valuable resource uh, for the Huey. Nope, gotta, we've got to spend more money on you and send you to a different aircraft. So the, uh, the Chinooks were in Afghanistan at the time. And, uh, you know, obviously that was sort of the, uh, the, the dream gig. Uh, the Blackhawks were in Timor. Uh, which was a good deployment, but it was more uh, certainly uh, at the time it was more of a low-level uh, conflict mm-hmm. against uh, you know rebel-type uh, activity. But the uh, Afghanistan was perfect, and it was on the Chinook, which at the time uh, I was uh, a little reluctant uh, about because you know it looks like a bus. You assume it uh, it flies and it handles like a bus. You know it's not. It can have midairs with itself. It can uh, it can do all <laughs> that sort of stuff and. And before Afghanistan, our Chinook squadron had been kind of a retirement squadron. Uh, it, it was a second tour one. It was like your reward posting um, after you'd done your hard yards on a Huey or a, or a Blackhawk. Um, or a lot of Kiowa guys went to it as well. But um, because our Chinooks, they, uh, they weren't particularly kitted out with defensive gear or weapons. Uh, they rarely went bush uh, or field, which was uh, as a bonus for, you know, for the older guys. Um, and uh, you got to do your sim trips. Well, we, first of all, you did your training at uh, Fort Rucker, so that's a good trip. Uh, and we did our uh, annual sim trips uh, in Seattle hmm. um, because we only had six Chinooks in our entire fleet. That's it for the whole country. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, just not uh, economically viable to, for us to have our own sim or to use our aircraft uh, just for that training. So much cheaper to send us over uh, business class, which is how our, our ADF sent uh, officers overseas at the time, which was nice. And then, yeah, you get a, a three-week, you know, with uh, typical Army fashion, you'd cram a one-week syllabus into three weeks. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, you'd, you'd have a paid holiday over to Seattle. We'd usually take a couple of weeks' leave on the end of it and uh, explore the Northwest. So it really was a retirement squadron uh, for, for taking it easy and enjoying yourself. But then, of course, uh, Afghanistan kicked off, and then suddenly you – know, a lot of the older guys moved on because it wasn't a retirement squadron anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean we have to actually do stuff? <laughs> yeah. Now, having said all those guys, they, they did a trip or two, and, and, sure. and that was that was great. But, yeah, it was uh, especially some of them were getting older, and they, yeah, they moved on. Um, but it did also mean the aircraft got kitted up quite nicely. The government uh, 
uh, like anyone, but uh, probably more so when you've only got six of them. You know, if we were to lose an aircraft, uh, yeah. and particularly the media could uh, could point to the government not having it equipped, you know, mm. uh, correctly or you know being able to defend itself, they'd be they'd be crucified. So they're happy to spend the money. And uh, yeah, we got miniguns, the M134D miniguns in each door. Uh, at the time, I think we were the only sort of regular army Chinooks to have those. Uh, we got lots of lots of armor plating. We got Blue Force Tracker installed, which we didn't have. We got uh, a full um, countermeasure system uh, with good uh, missile warning sensors. Uh, we, were, we were brilliantly kitted out, like had all the good toys. Uh, so, yeah, but despite that, yeah, I was sure it was going to be a bus. And, uh, but put my hand up, said, uh, yep, nah, I'd love to go Chinooks. Uh, got selected for it. And, uh, yeah, went across for, for three months. I think it was about three months uh, at Rucker. Uh, just learning on the normal AQC track uh, over mm. there, which was, it was a great trip. Uh, yeah, really, really loved it. Uh, Alabama, you'd never live there, but it, it's great for a, a drinking trip. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's close to the beach, so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'd spend plenty of time down at uh, PC and uh, and Destin. Uh, uh, yeah, did the course there. We finished off with a, uh, a month in uh, in Seattle uh, to do all our uh, instrument rating and, and normal emergency rides up there. Got back home and pretty much, yeah, jumped in the car with the family, moved up north to my new base in Townsville, uh, did my Australian conversion, and then, uh, boom, straight over to uh, Afghanistan in November '06. Uh, the, the nice thing was, like, on course in uh, in Raqqa, yeah, you know, my, my fears were sort of confirmed that, yeah, this thing was a bus. Um, you, know, you, just, <laughs> you just fly sort of from airfield to airfield, and it's it's very slow, and uh, and you're not going to do anything interesting. Um, but then, of course, that's, that's just the basic um, course. I got back to Australia and did my Australian conversion, and suddenly I'm flying with a guy, uh, one of our older ex-Air Force guys, and the guy was, he was, he was a machine. He was a master at flying this, uh, uh, the Chinook. Suddenly we're flying it like a Huey. Like, you know, we're, we're doing single engine, uh, roll on landings into a pad so tight that I would have been worried taking a Huey into it. Uh, yeah, we're flying this thing around like it's a sports car. And yeah, suddenly I started to feel a lot better about the Chinook, you know, this thing. We, I always knew it had a lot of power, but um, yeah, the way we were flying it, we, you were using all this power. You're doing, uh, pretty good, exciting dust approaches. Um, yeah, it, it, we really did fly it uh, the, tactically well. And so you did this tour, and then you did another tour with the U.S., or how did that work out? Yeah, well, what we had uh, in Afghanistan, we only had uh, two Chinooks, uh, a whole heap of other uh, units as well doing other things, but uh, aviation-wise, it was just the two Chinooks. Now, uh, yeah, obviously, on your own, you can't really get a lot done uh, just for the two Chinooks. Usually, one's in maintenance, and yeah, you always fly everywhere, at least in pairs. So basically, our uh, our task group uh, just attached on to the U.S. task force that was there, mm. uh, as, and basically became just another two of the U.S. task force's uh, Chinooks. Uh, I think as I got there, I believe the 10th Mountain was just uh, was just leaving uh, towards the end of uh, 06. I don't recall exactly, but uh, we started working with the 82nd guys, and um, yeah, we. It was as if we were just two more of the 80 seconds uh, Chinooks as far as tasking goes. We did all their normal tasking. Um, uh, and and this way we got to basically share the resources. You know, suddenly we're able to fly in, in you know, formations with other Chinooks. We've got access to the uh, the Apaches. Uh, didn't do much work with the OHs over there. 
um, and just just the normal uh, tasking through their system. So we'd uh, support anyone the US task force was was supporting. Uh, but then when it came time to uh, support uh, Australian troops, uh, particularly uh, special forces guys up in uh, Tarrant we could basically uh, present to uh, the command, the US task force, say, hey, we've got this. Uh, they generally send down a couple of uh, you know, operators and their ink guys who, are, who put on a bit of a, a show for the mm. bit of a show for the colonel. Uh, and they give him this uh, you know, a, a nice big PowerPoint presentation with lots of cool pictures and videos and use all the keywords about all the exciting things they want to do and like really sell it to him. And then uh, yeah, next thing you know, we were able to take, he'd, he'd give us all the resources uh, he could so we could go up to Tarrant do jobs supporting Australian troops with our two Chinooks. But on top of that, we'd have a couple of black holes with us, uh, potentially the uh, the HH-60s, the US Air Force guys. We, we'd have mm. a couple of uh, US Apaches with us. Uh, we'd also have the resources overhead. You know, you'd have you'd have predators overhead. You'd have uh, occasionally AC-130s, which was you know, fantastic, and all stuff that uh, even, even whether or not we could have done it, I don't know, but it would have been a nightmare to organise if we were just, you know, two oh, Australian yeah. Army Chinooks doing our own thing with no real connections other than, you know, swapping uh, slouch hats and, uh, and and slide beers under the table to try and get jobs done. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I worked when I was in I was in TK and we worked with with your special forces guys and yeah they could they could obviously work all those angles just by the very nature of who they were <laughs> you know they they had a line on all that stuff but uh, that was always a good time working with them. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they they get things done, and uh, and and it's best if you don't ask how. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and look, it was it was. It was just perfect for us, you know. Like, yeah, we obviously had, our responsibility was obviously to uh, to hold up air into the bargain, you know, make sure our aircraft's serviceable, that we're uh, doing things the way the U.S. Task Force wanted it done. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to uh, take on board all those resources and all that help, and then uh, you know, be a schmuck about it. You got to make sure you're doing you're doing uh, the job the way they want it done. Uh, but generally, it was it was a really really good working relationship. Um, uh, we would generally like. It, all of our pilots, uh, once they were signed off as a Chinook captain, they'd uh, you know, basically just instantly get the, the training and get signed off as AMC as well. Um, there, there was uh, quite a lot of uh, sort of mutual respect uh, or, or regard for the, the, the training systems um, uh, that we had. And, and like I said, our training system generally put out someone who was a lot closer to uh, uh, an operational pilot than um, sort of Rucker did because laying around Rucker puts out your, your basic basic guy then they get sent to the unit to be trained up um uh, to be operational whereas uh, like in the australian army we generally we take care of that all uh, in training so uh the guy you get uh, in the squadron uh is basically a little more feature complete hmm. mm. what um so how many deployments did you end up doing uh, three all up over now. When I say three, so it's uh, it's all up. That's still only about thirteen months, uh, I think, because yeah, we we don't do the deployments like uh, you crazy right. kids yeah. do. <laughs> the um, uh, yeah, God, if I went away for a year, I wouldn't expect my wife to be there when I got home. Yeah, so, well, sometimes they're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's uh, it's nuts, and uh, uh, I think when we first got there, again, it might have been the tenth mountain guys. Uh, they'd done their twelve months. And uh, I think some of the guys had even left country when they decided, no, you're doing another four months. Yeah. And, you know, suddenly ISAF stood for I stayed another four. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how you yeah, – I know you don't keep everyone in, in the military, but I don't know how you keep anyone in the military when, uh, you know, with stuff like that. Um, so we generally would do about four months. 
for rotation, which was pretty nice. Like, yeah, you, you don't, unless you're getting absolutely flogged, you're not going to get too fatigued in four months. And that was more of an aviation thing too. A lot of the grand guys would yeah. do eight months. Because um, you imagine the administrative burden of cycling that many guys through. Yeah, uh, well, and that's what it really boils down to is, is the the cost of moving the sheer volume of stuff that you're moving and yeah uh, i mean it's i my last tour was a five month and it, yeah you're right like like emotionally it was good because it was like oh it's only mm. five months but also in the role that i had which was essentially the chief of staff and trying to move everything it, you know it was literally i showed up you know and most of my staff was already there when i showed up and yep. the first meeting i had with them was okay we're now we're planning the departure you know, and it's like, we've only just got here, but that's how long it takes to move all that crap. So, so there's yeah. something to be said for a long tour, but yeah, on the, the just individual level, yeah, four, four or five months sounds really nice. Yeah. Like it's, uh, you know, fatigue, like I said, unless you're really getting uh, smashed, fatigue hasn't really kicked in by four or five months. Yeah. Um, but as far as, you know, especially for guys with families and for nearly all of our aviation guys, I think, uh, different from regular army where in aviation i think at the time yeah, the average age is about 31 uh and it's a guy married potentially second marriage but you know with a couple of kids so they're all family guys uh you know four or five month trip away from home is it's that's pretty good you're still gonna generally speaking hold uh, hold families together and uh, and that's why you can afford to do it year in year yeah. out uh the other difference we've got too i guess is we only had the one chinook unit so you're almost guaranteed you're going to go every year uh, yeah. So doing a four month trip was fine. You could do that. You get back. Um, the, the the only part of that that didn't quite work was uh, you get back from your four month deployment uh, and great. And uh, then a week later you're due to go to your annual sim in Seattle for uh, for another three mm. weeks and you go do that or you come back and you do it a course or something like that. So you, you're still never spending much time at home. Just uh, just yeah. not actually on on deployment. Um, and, and again, different to you guys. The uh, the allowances were also quite good like a lot of guys were fighting for uh these deployments because their allowances were very very generous um and normal pay would be uh would become tax-free while we're over there which is, is fairly normal but then uh with the different allowances based on the theater we're in and separation on allowance and all the different uh, things you have we're generally getting normal pay tax-free and then another tax-free 250 dollars a day yeah i was gonna say you guys make in a day <laughs> in yeah. combat that's like our combat pay for the month or something i can't remember what the number is but it was astounding it's it's yeah it's it's a crazy amount but um but then again yeah that's that's what they've worked out they need to do to get people to uh to, to stay in uh, and keep yeah. doing this stuff year after year um yeah i, I guarantee when uh, it, when the economy goes downhill and is in a bit of a lull the allowances will also go down because they don't really need to keep people in that much but that's what yeah. it was at the time so it's it's you know it's fantastic if you're smart you, you, know, you go away for a four-month deployment and you come back and you've you know got a good deposit on your house uh sorted out so uh, yeah. a lot of guys could quite happily do deployments just for the financial reasons as well me i mm. yeah i didn't tell anyone of course but i would have done it without the allowances it was uh, it was great over there it was, mm. uh, yeah. I mentioned all the all the magazines I had when I was a kid. Uh, you know, the uh, the airplane magazines. Well, suddenly I'm over there, and uh, all those, you know, all those aircraft I looked at when I was a kid, they're, they're all taxiing past my Chinook. Yeah, and you'd be there pre-flight in your aircraft, and a couple of AV8s go past, or a couple of A10s. The uh, doing a mission with an AC130 overhead, like that's that's just the coolest stuff out. Yeah, every day at Kandahar is like an air show. So ah, uh, it it was it was seriously a dream for me, like being a a mad uh, yeah, aircraft spotter. I just just love military aircraft. The um, 
and and sort of being a part of it or being involved in those missions was was just awesome, and especially with all the toys. Um, you know, they're doing a mission, doing an insertion with the SAS guys, uh, and you're putting them into this. It's obviously they want a particular uh, grid. But it's just a spot on a road in the middle of this massive big valley with no distinguishing features. So you know, on NVGs, you know, you come over that last hill and you're looking at it going, well, it all looks the same. But uh, you can just ask the uh, ask the AC130 for a sparkle, and then suddenly, boom, you've got this big IR dot on the ground uh, yeah. that's you know accurate to you know, eight or ten figure. Uh, it's just the coolest thing out to be able to use that stuff. Uh, having the AC call targets you know you call for the cherry ice call before you uh before you get to your rp or your release point and uh yeah he'll tell you right you know in this bearing this distance there's two guys and a dog sitting by a fire this bearing distance there's a hut and you know that every one of these things he's talking about uh, has been stored as a target so you know if, if that dog looks at us funny he can uh, press a couple of buttons and suddenly that target disappears the uh it's it's just phenomenal the stuff that we can't do um, back home. Uh, like I said, we're, we're very, very, uh, by international standards, a very small military. You know, mm. six, six Chinooks. Um, I think we had uh, somewhere around 36-odd uh, uh, Blackhawks, plus or minus a couple, a uh, similar number of Hueys. Um, and, yeah, it's, that's about it. But uh, having said that, you know, this is in a country of uh, – I don't even know what we're up to now, but it's somewhere around 25 million people. So yeah, I was going to say, I think the population of Dallas is the same size as Australia or something, you know, some crazy number when you, yeah. when you compare the two countries. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and it's a very different, uh, part of the world we're down in, you know, uh, yeah. overall it's, it's a very quiet, very, uh, pretty safe and non-confrontational part of the world down here. Um, it's, uh, you know, we're not, uh, we're, fairly different society culturally we're very very similar to to americans but as far as the the military side of things we're not a very militaristic society at all because we haven't had to yeah. be you know like you know, we we've uh, we've never been attacked on our well no no i shouldn't say that never but uh, <laughs> recently we haven't been attacked on our own soil that sort of thing you know there's not yeah. that general culture of uh, uh of needing to be militarily uh strong in Australia, which is for a guy who gets out of the army, is, is also kind of nice. You know, it's, it's a bit relaxing. So, when did you get out of the, the army? Uh, yeah, I got back from my last trip mid two thousand and ten, uh, and I pretty much got out then. But I had like uh, I had about six months of uh, long service leave because that was that was eleven years in the army uh, by that stage. So I had you know, long service leave, uh, the remainder of my leave balance. So I took about six months of. of I mean, technically still being in the army, but yeah, not really. Right. Uh, sleeping in, not shaving, uh, you know, just relaxing, knowing that I was coming to a uh, uh, medical medical job, where I'd, which would probably be pretty demanding on my time, at least initially, while I uh, got used to the job. And then, yeah, 2011, uh, moved back down south uh, to uh, Melbourne and the state of Victoria down here, uh, which is originally where I was from uh, growing up. Uh, and yeah, down uh, doing medical work initially in a Bell Four One Two. So you know, back to my Huey roots. It was a it was a beautiful girl in you know, in typical Bell fashion. They they had a good idea in the fifties and they haven't done a lot with it since. They uh, they just put more engines and more stuff in there, but it's still a Huey. Yeah. The, uh, so so many of the limits uh, were still the same as in an H model Huey. It was uh, it was ridiculous. Um, and I've been doing that for the last. I've just ticked over ten years now, uh, doing uh, doing EMS work down here. And now we fly an Augusta Westland one three nine, uh, which is a fantastic aircraft for, uh, for for EMS work. 
military work, I never want to sit in anything European, but uh, for, for, for civilian or EMS work, it's, it's fantastic. So you're going to be doing that for the foreseeable future. You're pretty happy with it. I'm very happy with it. The um, yeah, I, I dare say I'm I'm hoping I've got another. Uh, depending on my enthusiasm, because the the two a.m. wake up sometimes uh, wear wear you down a little. But uh, I'm hoping I got another five to ten years of this before uh, you know, hopefully uh, sort of retire or semi-retire. Um, but yeah, I, I I love the work, particularly for a guy coming out of the military um, who'd done deployments who needed that little bit of excitement um, or, or purpose it's this is the perfect job for me um, I, I would have really struggled going to say offshore um, going out to all rigs and back doing doing shuttle runs um, because yeah I, I needed uh, I definitely needed more um, adrenaline or, or purpose uh, yeah. to the work to keep me going because um, yeah I uh, I didn't have really the, the only real drama I had adjusting to civilian life when I came back was the boredom. Um, yeah. You know, and especially moving down here in Victoria, which is has almost nothing to do with the military down here. It's great you you really don't hear about the the military unless uh, something big happens, uh, which is kind of nice to get that separation so you're not thinking about it all the time. But uh, but it's also a shock to the system when you know you, you've been in the military for the last sort of fifteen years on and off. Uh, everything focused towards that. Now you're you're dealing with normal civilian people who uh, are excited about strange things like reality TV and uh, Justin Bieber <laughs> and all this stuff that I uh, I didn't understand. Uh, you know they, they don't swear as much as we do and uh, yeah, that's they feel a fact. yeah yeah the uh, <laughs> but the coming to ambulance work the the nice thing was it was a very very similar culture uh, to the military. Like very few of our paramedics have been in the military, but it's a it's a very, very uh, similar culture. It's uh, uh, sort of more yeah, action-orientated. Um, uh, you consider yourself separate to normal civilians because, of course, we see the, the stupid things uh, our patients yeah. do all the time. So uh, it's, it's a male-dominated workspace, um, you know, which I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's certainly a, a nice transition for someone coming from the Army, which very male-dominated workspace. Mm-hmm. Um to the ambulance work, uh, and you know you can generally, uh, within reason, you, know, you can swear, uh, scratch your uh, scratch yourself, and uh, uh, and carry on like an idiot, um, uh, quite happily without upsetting anyone. Whereas in a normal workspace, I'm sure I'd be in front of HR most days. Yeah, they um, frown on that at uh, IBM. So. They they do. Yeah, it's it's weird, but no, and it's nice. And of course, when the phone rings, uh, it's an actual job. We uh, yeah. You do do some uh, particularly winch currency training uh, with the paramedics, but it's nice. I go to work. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll check. The, I'll make sure the aircraft's ready. It's got some hours on it. I'll check the weather and no tams for for our area for our state, just to see there's nothing that instantly jumps out and uh, catches my attention. Uh, and then other than that, you know, I'll go upstairs. I'll I'll have a nice coffee. I'll I'll do the quiz with the guys that are online today. Um, uh, if the phone doesn't ring. Uh, yeah, I'll do my secondary duties during the day. I'm the MVG guy. Uh, any other stuff like you know, wash the aircraft or, or tidy up around the place. But uh, yeah, after lunch, if the phone doesn't ring, I might put my feet up in a recliner and have a snooze. Yeah, and unlike the military, I haven't got someone you know sticking right. their head in saying, "Well, why aren't you working? Why, why aren't you pretending to look busy?" Yeah. Uh, because these guys, all they care about is that the aircraft's online. I've got pants on and I'm ready to go. <laughs> uh, and, and that's it. So, it, look, if I'm there managing my fatigue or, or you know, resting, great, because they know uh, we do a 10-hour shift during the day uh, and a 14-hour shift during the night. 
Now, uh, at night, we're encouraged to do like no more than an hour of our secondary duty. Um, do about an hour of that, have dinner, maybe watch some TV, and then get to bed. We've all got our own bedrooms, you know, n- nice and quiet. Um, because they know that uh, if the phone then rings half an hour before shift change in the morning, you might be on the go for another six uh, hours. And if mm. you've stayed up all night, you know, pretending to work or, or writing documents right. or whatever, suddenly that's a 20-hour shift and that's not going to work for anyone. Um, yeah. And the ambulance service, all they care about is that uh, the aircraft's ready to go, ready to respond. Uh, 10 minutes by day, 20 minutes by night. This is you know, extra 10 minutes to for the increased um, planning. Uh, and also to get your pants back on, but um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and that ten minutes we we pretty much always achieve. Uh, look, if it's if the weather's not particularly interesting, um, and uh, and it's not something like an offshore job, um, it'll come over the the PA system. Um, you know, you get a primary to um, a certain town, and as long as it's somewhere I've heard of, we can generally just walk straight out of the aircraft, jump in, start up, and go. Uh, and we'll work, we'll work out the rest on route. You don't need a flight plan. Um, you, you don't need any of this. As I'm starting up, uh, I'll, I'll tell Tower, hey, I'm going to be you know medevac for Wangaratta. Uh, and that's not asking for a clearance. That's just so he can start sort of clearing a bit of a path, make sure that when I do call for a clearance, he can get me uh, on the go straight away. Um, if it is more complex, the weather's rubbish, or, or there is more to think about, then, yeah, sit down the computer, we'll punch out a plan, takes a couple of extra minutes, but... Um, the nice thing is we got ATC looking after us. Uh, the airfield I stage out of, uh, Essendon, it shares, it's in the CTR as uh, Tullamarine or Melbourne Airport, you know, which is that major it's international airport. Uh, so there is a little bit of deconfliction uh, that comes with that if I need to go across the, uh, the international one. But the nice thing is I've got, uh, I've got Tower, uh, and our ATC guys are phenomenal, uh, especially considering the... Uh, you know, the, the problems we lump them with sometimes will come up on no notice and say, hey, I need to go this way and I'm medivac. Um, you know, they'll, they'll move corners out of the way for us. Uh, mm. they'll, they'll make it work. And especially because, you know, some of the crazy stuff uh, we can do that's, uh, you know, completely like anyone else. Um, in the air, you know, I might elect to launch uh, initially low level on NVGs at night, knowing that the weather is rubbish on the route, uh, on route and if I can't uh, scoot through on the gogs, I'm going to need to change category and uh, punch on up into his airspace. Uh, now, you know, we'll, we'll work with him. I'll, uh, I'll give him a heads up and say, hey, I'm doing this. I'll give you as much notice as I can, but in the next few minutes, I may need to change category and climb to 5,000 just so you can start uh, clearing a path. But, yeah, and they're fantastic the way they, they, work, they work with us uh, to get the job done. Well, it sounds like a, a fun job, just uh, inflexible on the pants. So, um, yeah, I know it's we're working it comes on it with the price. We're, we're working <laughs> on it. See, see, now that's unlike the military, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, you definitely got to wear pants there. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you uh, taking the time and, and sharing that with us. And, uh, yeah, it's good, good to talk to you. Hey, no problem at all, man. Uh, good to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, if anyone wants to ask any more questions, uh, feel free. Uh, you generally know where to find me on the, uh, on the Discord.
Um, well, cool, man. I appreciate you, uh, you know, giving us some insight into how it all works in, in the land down under and, uh, and, uh, some interesting, uh, feedback on, uh, how it is to work with the U S army in certain, <laughs> certain situations. <laughs> I know. I, I get the feeling I'm about to meet a few people from the 101st. Really? Yeah. The, uh, yeah. You pull the, off some Christmas card lists. I think the, the nice thing is though, I'll know if they're really from the 101st cause they'll agree with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had the pleasure of working with the Australian defense force in multiple ways, both in combat and in training. And I got to tell you, I was always impressed. A great bunch of guys and gals who are very mission-focused and aggressive in their action. I'm very thankful for Scott for coming onto the show, and I look forward to speaking with some other Aussies here in the future. Don't forget to check out the website, www.thelowlevelhellpodcast.com, and you can see the pictures that Scott and our other guests have provided. While you're there, you can follow the links to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And if you feel compelled to support the show financially, you can take a look at our Patreon and the different tiers of support, along with the bonus content that some of them provide, as well as access to our DCS server for you gamers and other side events that we try to run monthly. A reminder that views expressed by the guests and hosts on their own do not represent the Department of Defense or any private business. We'll wrap up International Month on the next one. Till then, stay safe, stay healthy, and just be good dudes and dudettes to one another. Take care.